Okay, for those of you who were not here last week, we are doing something called Ask the Pastor. I have never done this before. I've heard it done, um, but I have never done it before. So we asked all of you to send in your text messages of the kinds of things that you would like to know. I had a question of what is my favorite ice cream. Thank you, Megan, for that. Uh, I want to know. <laughs> right now? Yeah, well, you asked us to send you what we want to know. <laughs> it's lychee vegan ice cream from Village. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm totally hipster, it's not, I got dairy issues, so. Uh, so we've, uh, I think we've got about five of them. We were not able to answer all of them, sorry for that, but I think we've got about five of them. And Andrew and I put our heads together this week, and uh, then we did some more study, and uh, we will do our best to answer your questions. And um, so there are going to be, obviously, times we're going to have you turn to the passage. So it may not be your question, but it doesn't matter. Uh, it'll be a question that hopefully uh, maybe you've asked at some point. And um, so uh, if we have time afterwards, I'll keep a, a watch on here as to how much time we've done. If we have time afterwards, we might open the floor up if there might be some other questions or some other comments. Here's the unfortunate thing for you. We're actually going to do five different subjects, which is crazy. But if you have questions about those subjects, you can write them down, but we're not going to give you a chance to talk about them after each subject. We're just going to go to the next one. So you can write down your questions or comments, and then we'll, we'll deal with those at the end. And then if we get through the comments or questions you have quick, then we'll open up the floor for any other questions you may, not, you may have. Uh, everybody got it? Okay, well, we're going to dive all over into God's Word, so we need to pray and ask Him to help us. So uh, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, how grateful we are that as a community of believers, we can gather to, uh, first of all, worship Your name because we love You so very much. We also consider it a great privilege that we can come and spend time around Your Word to learn from You and what Your Word says. Sometimes, Lord, there's some questions that are difficult for us to answer. And uh, I pray this morning that uh, as Andrew and I speak and as we process it together as a community of believers, we would come to conclusions about your truth that help uh, reshape our thinking and uh, reshape the way that we live our lives because your word is meant to transform the way we live and, uh, and transform our thinking in, in the process of changing the way we live. So I pray this morning, first of all, you'd help us with our thinking, that you would transform the way that we think we want to think like you want us to think, not our default. We've got all kinds of thoughts from our flesh. We don't want those. We want to know from your word and from your truth. So lead and guide us this morning. We submit ourselves to your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. Okay. So uh, first of all, we'll start off with a question. Uh, who are the Nicolaitans? And uh, this is in Revelation chapter 2. So I would have you turn over there with me and Andrew. In Revelation chapter 2. Um, does anybody who didn't, the person who did not ask this question, could you, anybody ever heard of the Nicolaitans before you know what we're talking about? Okay, yeah, Revelation chapter 2. Um, uh, do you want to read the verses, Andrew? And then, and then Andrew will start us off here. Yeah. Did you have both of them in chapter 2? Yeah, one? yeah, I had both in chapter 2. Okay. Probably maybe verse 5 of chapter 2. Yeah. And then continue on to 6, and then we'll jump down to verse 4, 
14, 15. All right, so Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do, and do the deeds. Sorry, my Bible is underlined and all pen and I can't read the text. There you go. There's a, that's why you don't underline your scriptures. So. Let me try that again. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and I'll move your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. You, yet you, you do have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then I also have Revelation 2, 14 and 15. It says, but I have a few things against you. This is a different church now. Uh, because you have, there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept the teaching of Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat the things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You want to start? Something? Sure. So basically, uh, Dan and I in our studies were con had consensus on this, that the origins of the Nicolaitans are kind of unclear and hard to find. We don't know if this was a, a person named Nicholas and uh, one guy started following his teachings or it was, or what was really the origins. And I think there's different suggestions online and the commentators of maybe who they were, but really it's unclear. But the scriptures do make it clear here that uh, it gives us some indication from Revelation of who they might be. Now, Dan and I have like two options for you on this. I'll present one and he'll present the other. So in verse uh, 14 and 15, 15, the last sentence is key. He says, after he teaches that... Um, he has some things against this church who keep teaching the things of Balaam. He says this, So you also have some who in the same way hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So therefore, there seems to be a link between the teachings of Balaam and in that same way the Nicolaitans are, are representative, representatives of him, the way he taught and the things he upheld to. Now, if that's the option then, then you have to go back to what Balaam was like in the history of Israel. So you remember, this. you can read this in Numbers, uh, Numbers starting in chapter 22, it goes all the way through like the 30, like this, or actually 25 really, of, of who, uh, this story of Balaam and the king of Moab. But basically, uh, Balaam's a prophet, and uh, this uh, Moabite king wants to hire him because he knows that he's, he's a prophet, and he wants him to curse Israel. So he pays him money to curse Israel, and Balaam says, I can't do that, yeah, I can't do that. So. He, he's more persistent though and Balaam comes up, comes up with a way to weaken Israel a way to weaken them and so what he does is he um, he suggests to the king that he uses Moabite and Midianite women to tempt the Israelites into sexual relationships and into pagan rituals well we find out that this happens because in Numbers 25 we see God destroying all the people for doing this and Balaam is executed in the, in the process so what, when you see this here, he's basically telling them to go back into sexual immorality and into pagan idolatrous worship. So here we have this idea that Balaam, for money, is willing to basically lead God's people astray in the categories of basically uh, like following God in terms of who he was in terms of holy character and also into uh, sexual immorality. Now it's interesting then in chapter 2, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 1. Because he describes false prophets there, and he gives them two categories. He says, many will follow after their sensuality, and in their greed they'll exploit you. So the two characteristics are wanting money, 
uh, for false teaching and also their sensuality. So after he gives the, this, these descriptions of them, in verse 15 he says this, as con in conclusion, after this false prophet section. He says, these people forsaking their right way have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So these false teachers are in, in the same way like Balaam, and they're going after sensuality and greed. So therefore, if it's in that same way uh, the Nicolaitans are teaching like Balaam, in that same way they're also teaching the church basically this. Like they're, they're exploiting the church for money and their false teaching and saying, you can be a Christian and live however you want. <laughs> Right? You go ahead and just God, God doesn't care about how you live in your character. He's a holy God, but He loves you, and so therefore, go ahead and just do with your body whatever you want. And in that way, um, they're, they're, that is very much. Oh, no, so that's also very prevalent today in the false teachers we see. Uh, what do they teach? Basically, you can live how you want as a Christian because it doesn't really matter. And they make a lot of money off of teaching those messages. So. Uh, that is one sort of quick explanation that, um, of who the Nicolaitans might have been and the teaching that they held. And if, if what's interesting too, in chapter 2, verse 6 of Revelation, or sorry, um, in chapter 2, 14, he says, you've kept the teachings to do this, to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of sexual immorality. That's a, that's in a direct opposition to the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council said what? Uh, we don't want the Gentiles and the new, they can become part of the Christian community, but we want to abstain from being things, um, um, sacrificed to idols and basically acts of sexual morality. That's what it is to be part of the Christian community. So these guys would be opposing the Jerusalem Council and the teaching of the apostles as well. So that's, that's potentially one option. The other option is just more general. It's, uh, it's, it's not necessarily specific to, it is the teaching of Balaam, that's one option. It's the teaching of Balaam, sexual immorality, and these kinds of things. The other option could be that um, in, in the same way that you, that you do hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, it's just saying in the same way as being disobedient in, in regards to Balaam, so in the same way you're being disobedient and holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And in that sense, we wouldn't know what, he, what exactly he's teaching. But what's curious here is that we've got two different churches here. One church has actually permitted the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and the other church actually has hated it. So, but the notion is this. This is not some kind of teaching that says, God is dead, we hate God, we hate Jesus Christ. This is not that. This is some kind of teaching that can actually infiltrate the church, and it can be taught in such a way where people within the church can be sucked into believing that it's true. Because obviously this is what's going on. There are some of you who have held to this. So... This is some kind of twisted teaching that can get into the church and become a cancer. And of course, there's all kinds of warnings about this in the New Testament. And um, I would just, if I, were to, if I were to put a kind of a conclusive statement to what this option would be in a more general way, it would be some kind of twisted teaching pitched inside the church that could lead people into behaving in ways that God would clearly be against. I know that's very general, but that, that, would, that could be the other option. Does this kind of stuff happen today? Of course it does. Uh, I think one of the, one of the uh, examples that I think uh, is c clearly whacked and has infiltrated churches is this whole prosperity gospel. If you, are, if you are a Christian, God's going to make you rich. That's just the way that it is. So if you're not wealthy, then what's wrong with you? You get, you get in track with God, and then he'll make you more wealthy because that's just what God wants to do. This is a direct contradiction to what Jesus said. And uh, when the guy says, hey, we'd, we'd like to follow you, and Jesus says, well, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests. I've got an order in my head. So you come following me. This is what you're in for. You're in for a place where you don't have a home. And uh, 
Furthermore, when Jesus would say, how hard is it for the rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven? So what I'm suggesting is that there are ways in which people can twist things and find a way to get into the church and infiltrate it. And the Nicolaitan, whatever their teaching was, uh, was clearly had clearly infiltrated one church. And in another church, they said, no way, we're not, we're not going to support that. So uh, it was a lot longer than I thought it was going to take for that first one. But that was that's the first one. Sorry, you cannot comment, but you can write down any questions. Um, and we will move on to the next one. Uh, the next one is, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll start off this one. Uh, this is, uh, does God still call the Israelites his people? So the Jewish people clearly are, as a, as a vast whole, want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Want nothing to do with him. They're grateful for all these tourists who come over uh, to Israel, but uh, they really want nothing to do with Jesus Christ personally. But the question is, is that, well, if they're not in right relationship with God then, are the Israelites still his people? And the quick answer is yes. Yes, they are. Uh, but there's a caveat to that. There's a key verse, and I would like you to turn with me uh, to this key verse. It's Romans chapter 11 and verse 28. Um, and as you're turning there, I'm just going to read you some scriptures from the Old Testament. Uh, this is Isaiah. If you're taking notes, you can just jot this down. This is Isaiah 43.10. It says, you are, you are my witnesses, declared the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. He's talking to the Israelites here. In order that you may know and believe and understand that I am he, before me there is no other God. So there's a purpose in which they were chosen, that they would know who God was. That's a, the that's a reason why they were chosen. Uh, you can read some more in, in chapter uh, 44 as well of Isaiah. Then we get to Romans 11 and verse 28. It's very critical to understand this verse. It says, from the standpoint of the gospel, this is talking about the Jewish people. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies. They are enemies. So the Jewish people right now, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies. Now, why would they be enemies? Because the gospel is summed up in... In, in, in these few words in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, which says, For Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins. The Jewish people do not believe this, and therefore they are enemies of God. So from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Now for your sake, I, I know we're jumping right into the middle of Romans 11, but for your sake, it therefore talks about the grace that has come to us as Gentiles as a result of this, but that's a whole other question and answer thing. So I'm going to leave that off to the side, but you just need to know from the standpoint of the gospel, currently they are enemies because they have not embraced the gospel. But then look at this. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So you've got on the one hand that they are enemies of God, but yet somehow they are still chosen. So how do you rectify this? And this is where some of my reform friends, I think, misunderstand. They they. They seem to suggest that to be chosen means that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, here, they are chosen because, because of the forefathers. It goes all the way back to Abraham. And Abraham was chosen right from the beginning, and he says, I'm going to make you a nation. And it basically talks about this prophecy that from here on in, it's going to be your line that I'm going to choose. For what? That, like I said in Isaiah 43, that they would know who God is and believe in him. They're chosen for that purpose. And they're chosen also to be a light to the rest of the world of who Jesus Christ is and who the gospel and what the gospel is. 
But when Jesus Christ, when the Messiah showed up on the scene, they completely rejected him. And so right now, they are enemies, but they are still chosen. So they're still chosen for the sake, because of their, uh, the forefathers, starting all the way back from Abraham. So God still has his hand upon them, wanting to bring them in. There's all kinds of prophecies going on uh, in, in regards to Israel, uh, especially in the future, but prophecies that we can look at that are already been fulfilled. And if you have, like I do, I have Flipboard. It's an app. It's a great app. And you can choose whatever news you want. I always get the Israel news pumped into my phone because I'm always curious to see what's going on there because I believe from the scriptures that they are still chosen. So God is still working there. He's still working with these people. They are not in right relationship with him, but he's still working with them. And if you believe other portions of Romans 11, uh, there's a, a very, very strong suggestion that there's going to be a multitude of Jewish people come to faith in the end. So that's my take uh, on that quick question. And Andy, you want to jump in there? And yeah, sure. This is getting like I'm just adding like a icing on maybe the top of the cake or flowers to a already nice table. <laughs> But basically, another way I've uh, I've had to deal with this specifically too, just through my uh, so like some of my my family's interest in Israel, because my my auntie, for example, was a missionary to the Israelite people and lived there for many years. And of course, my relationship with Peter, who's doing this tour, of course, he makes me um, aware of some of the things going on. But this is this idea of replacement theology. It's basically the idea that the the church is now the new Israel, and has replaced Israel in terms of God's uh, covenants in terms of God's uh, care, and um, basically all the promises made to Israel that were fulfilled in the church. And um, there's some, some major issues with this. Um, there's multiple ways you can look at it, but I also want to deal with it from one perspective only, and that's prophecy. Prophecy. If you believe that the church has replaced Israel and God has forsaken his people, the Jews, then you have to do some major spiritual gymnastics with prophecy in the Bible. Uh, for example, in Ezekiel, he talks about the millennial temple. Uh, that's never been a temple like that in the history of the world, the way that's described. It's going to reign for a thousand years, according to Revelation. It's mentioned six times. Uh, we haven't had a temple like that. Some of the events in Zechariah that he just talks about have not occurred. Some of the events in Jeremiah and Isaiah have not occurred. But I want to just focus specifically on two passages from Jesus, um, from the time of Jesus and Peter in, at Pentecost. And these are very fascinating words. Uh, just turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Verse 17. So this is uh, Peter uh, preaching. And he's speaking to the Israelite people. So context is key. He's talking to the Jewish people here, okay? Uh, verse 12 actually substantiates that. When Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed? Okay, so we got the context. Look at verse 17. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that this Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled it. So prophecy number one, that Christ would come and die on the cross, and that's, that's a fulfillment of prophecy. But it gets better in verse 19. Therefore, repent and return. Repent and return to who? To Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be wiped away. Now watch this. In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom of heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God has spoken about by the mouth of his holy prophets. 
that the key word, the key phrase here is this, he must send Jesus. I thought he just sent Jesus. <laughs> he just sent him. You have to turn to him because your sins are forgiven. But he's saying, listen, there's more to the prophecies. He's coming back. I want you to return to him because he's coming back. And he's going to do what? Restore all things. If the church has replaced Israel, all the restoration has occurred. And now we're just waiting for the, the end times. But he's saying, no, Christ is coming back again according to the holy prophets. And so now when you go back to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, and you read these things about the Lord and the second coming, and even Jesus' own words in Matthew about when the Jesus' disciples said, what's going to happen when they looked at the temple and thought it's marvelous? What's going to happen? And he says, let me tell you the history of events. Jesus talks about a second coming, even in those, in those contexts. So, so clearly God still has in favor uh, and, and, and this ideal for the Jewish people, which Dan highlights in Romans 11. So let's do the second passage, right in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. This is interesting too. This is uh, the disciples, Christ is about to go up into heaven. And so verse 6, so when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will see the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Here's the thing. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, you've got it wrong, guys. I'm not restoring the kingdom to Israel. The fact that I'm coming in the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of it. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He doesn't rebuke them, saying you don't understand what's going on here. He basically says, it's just not for you to know the times in which I'm going to do this very thing. And the, the, you can tell by the disciples' mindset, they're not thinking spiritual. They're thinking physical, literal kingdom. And, and all Jesus says is this. There is a physical time for the restoration of Israel. You just don't know when that is. But for now, just let me tell you, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And that's going to be the first stage, I guess, of, of, of this happening. So anyway, when you put those two passages together, Peter, after receiving this teaching in Acts 3, is even more powerful, doesn't turn around after understand Jesus it's only spiritual otherwise his message to the Israelites in Acts 3 would have, wouldn't have included the restoration of the, the physical kingdom so we know when you read the Bible now and you hear about the promises for these people he hasn't forsaken them and how else do you explain uh, that the nation wasn't in existence for like 1900 years and in 1948 the nation comes together is reestablished and Donald's Trump announcement of the capital being Jerusalem as a major significant event in Israel's history because the world has been vying for that land. And by Trump's declaration, Israel is Jerusalem's the capital, ticked off the world because now it's making a stance, the most powerful nation in the world saying, no, this belongs to the Jewish people. And that's why they're in uproar of it. So anyway, and there's no Amalekites today. There's no Philistines. There's no Midianites. There's none of these nations left. No Philistines. Israel exists. So if they've been forsaken by God, I don't know how they could possibly be physically in existence to this day. So is God's favor on the Israelites? Yes. Yes. Are they in right relationship with God right now? No. But his favor is still on them. So um, we, could, we could talk a lot more on this, yeah. and Andrew and I, we could roll. But yeah. this I want to leave you with one just fact. Yeah. This is as of 2014, uh, well, 2015, sorry, somewhere in there. Peter, who's the guy that's leading the tour, said this, because he works in Israel. He lived there for like three years working with the people. He said, in about 19, uh, 50 years ago, there's about 30,000 people who, uh, 30,000 Jews that lived, lived in uh, Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. 30,000, about 50 years ago. Today, there's 250,000. 
So he's saying, okay, so, you know, the Messianic movement, are people turning back to the Lord in Jerusalem? Yeah, it's super slow because there's still millions. I think there's like, I don't know how many millions live in the land. But the point is, is that directly in that, that, that area, there's quarter of a million now who are directly, who believe in the Messiah that Peter's work, that he knows about from his stats. So 50 years, 30 to 250, that's greater growth than in Canada. Our church is in decline in Canada. They've gone from 30 to 250,000 in 50 years. So it's a slow return of the Jewish people. My, and my hunch on that too is that I think from Romans 11, I think when there's going to be a shift, I think it's going to be a massive shift. I think it's going to be headline material where we are going to see, and I hope we get to live in that day and age where masses of Jewish people are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But then again, uh, that's for... Uh, another day for we to talk about that. Mm -hmm. uh, what, we're on number three? Yeah. Okay, number three. This is in Luke chapter 16. What is the parable of the unrighteous steward supposed to be teaching? One of the toughest <coughs> parables in the New Testament. This unrighteous steward. And I think people get this confused all the time. Um, because uh, in the story, the, the, um, uh, the rich man, uh, he actually praises this steward and so we sometimes people get to thinking oh well then what should I learn from the steward wrong uh, it's an it's an unrighteous steward it's uh, somebody who's about to be fired it's somebody who is uh, defined as unrighteous so this is not something we are to learn from him let me briefly walk through the passages here. I'm going to try to do this quickly uh, this is Luke chapter 16 verses 1 through to 13. What I'll do is I'll just kind of kind of read the verse and give you some commentary as we, as we walk through it. Now he was saying to the disciples, there's a certain rich man who had a steward, and his steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. So apparently this, uh, this man has this guy who's overseeing his finances, and this guy who's overseeing his finances is squandering his money away. And uh, the, the buddy finds out about this, and, he, and basically he's going he's gonna to ax him. Verse 2, he called them and said to them, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of the stewardship, for you can no longer be my steward. So he's about to fire him. This is what I've heard. You've taken my money and you're using it in an unwise way. You are essentially fired. The steward said to himself, What shall I do, since my master has taken the stewardship away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I'm removed, so apparently he hasn't been removed yet, this is an imminent thing going to happen, when I'm fired, uh, from the stewardship, they will receive me into their home. So somebody's going to receive them into their homes. We don't know who that is yet. And he summoned uh, each one of his master's debtors. So this is a guy who's overseeing all of his finances and a bunch of people who owes his master a bunch of money. He calls with these people in, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe your master? And the one said, well, 100 measures. And he goes, well, quickly, uh, take your bill, sit down quickly, write me 50, 50% 50 off of what you owe. And he said to another, how much do you owe? And he says, 100. Uh, measures of wheat. He says, quick, write out, uh, write out 80, 20% reduction. And here's the kicker. So he does this. Why? Because he wants favor later on from these people. That's why he's doing this. And his master praised the unrighteous steward. Don't miss that. Don't. He praised this really good guy. This is an unrighteous steward who is getting fired. So, but you have to look at why he praised him. Because he had acted shrewdly for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of life. Not exactly sure what this is, how this is referring to, but 
uh, some have suggested, which I might uh, lean towards, the sons of this age, so the people of this age who aren't called the sons of light, they actually are better with their money than actually the sons of light. Could be an interpretation of this. And then he says, okay, here's a lesson in verse 9. I say to you, make friends for yourself by the means of the money of unrighteousness. Then when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. It's a loaded verse. And um, uh, a couple of different ways of, of seeing this verse. But in other words, he's saying, use your money in such a way that you make friends. So how can you use money where you buy, whereby you have friends? You've got to be generous. You've got to give them stuff. And if you give them stuff and you're kind to them with your money, then they'll probably think that you're a friend of theirs and want to deal with you kindly, just like this unrighteous steward did. So Jesus is saying, at the end, make friends with it so that when the money fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. That they probably referring to uh, the host of heaven may receive you into eternal dwellings. Why? Because you weren't fixated on money. You were the kind of person who can make friends with money, which means you're quite free with this and, and being generous with other people. Why? Because at the end, he who is faithful in little uh, will be faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in very little will be unrighteous also in much. If, therefore, you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous money, who will entrust true riches to you? Now there's a, a comparison between the two. And if you have been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Here's the kicker. No servant can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or else will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Verse 14, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to these things, and they were scoffing at him. So now the Pharisees pull into the equation here. Here's the deal. Jesus is talking about money, and he's saying, now here's how to use money rightly. Hold on to it loosely. Hold on to it loosely and make friends with it. Use your money in ways you can make friends with. In other words, and this is all throughout Scripture. We talked about this in the young adults. As Christians, we are to be known as generous people. That should be a label on the back of us. We're known as generous people. Why? Because we do not hold money as some kind of God. We are not hoarders of what we have, nor do we want to, with how little we have, and this is, by the way, this is just not for the rich. A lot of people think, oh, this is just for the rich people. No, all kinds of people in any economic bracket can be hoarders of their money because they hold that it's going to give them something that it cannot. And Jesus is saying, well, why don't you make friends with money? How do you do that? You're going to have to give it away. And if you give it away, then it's not your God. And if it's not your God, then you can freely serve God. Pharisees couldn't because what? They were lovers of money and couldn't stand what Jesus was saying in this. Essentially, the message is this. If you've got money, and we all do, make friends with it. Be generous with it. Don't hold to it. Don't make it your God, because then you can freely serve God. It's going to be a temptation, but don't do that. Pharisees didn't like it, and so they're scoffing at him for it. But we as Christians say, amen to this teaching, and we embrace it. That was very fast. That's all I'm giving you. <laughs> so that's, uh, normally that'd be a full sermon, of course. Then we've got the doozy. So this is the, the fourth one. And again, if, you're, if you want to have, have questions, you can just write these down. Uh, how can God have a plan for my life if I have free will to choose my path? How can God have a plan for my life if I have free will to choose my path? Uh, Andrew, I think you're starting this one out, aren't you? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, typically when that question is asked, at least from my experience, and I hope the questioner who asked this probably meant it in this way, 
Um, usually what they mean is this, is that there's an assumption that God has a plan for you in sort of three areas of life. Like, uh, what, uh, what's God's plan for me in terms of work? So it's usually a vocational plan. Uh, how about uh, relationships? Who am I to marry or am I supposed to be single or, you know, like how am I to relate? Or what job am I going to get? You know, things like that. These relational ideas and locational, like where am I supposed to live? What school am I going to go to? And all that type of stuff. So when they say, how do I make, you know, how does God have a plan for me vocationally, locationally, or relationally? They really mean is like, you know, how is he going to like act in my life? And yet I still have the freedom to choose who I want to be with, where I'm going to go, what job I'm going to take, and so on and so forth. Um, for, for us, it's, like, you know, Dan and I talk about this, it's pretty simple if God has a locational, relational, or vocational plan for your life. He'll tell you in three ways, vision, dream, or audible voice. Abraham, what is it, Lord? I'd like you to get up and leave your land. Oh, okay. I got it. Right? That's a good commentary. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, I've chosen you. For what, Lord? Uh, you're going to suffer from my name and go to the Gentiles. Oh, okay. Right? They're, 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 pure, they're, they're pure things. Uh, Joseph, what, Lord? Uh, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Oh, okay, Lord. Right? They're, both, they're, they're visions, dreams, audible voices. What we have is these internal battles in our mind, and we think, is God talking to me? Is not God not talking to me? That's really what we're doing. Is it the Spirit leading me? Those are the kind of things that you're dealing with when you think of those questions. First thing I would say to that is that... Um, God's plan is clear in terms of his will for your life when he does speak to you in visions, dreams, or audible voices. Other than that, I really believe truly that the world's your oyster. Make decisions. Just don't sin against the Lord. So where, does, where is God's plan, though, in terms of his absolute sovereign plan in your life? Be very clear. When it comes to building his kingdom or character-based. So God's will is strictly in character. So if someone says, what's God's will in my life? I can say, I can tell you in character, and I can tell you in first kingdom purposes. What do you mean by that? Five times in scripture, he actually uses, for this is the will of the Lord. This is the will of the Lord. This is the will of the Lord. And I'll give them to you super fast. First Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of the Lord, that you be sanctified. What does sanctified mean? To be set apart for his use, to be made holy. What's another area? You, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 to 16. You're to be persistent in your prayer lives and be thankful. Okay? So if you're like a Debbie Downer, uh, that's not God's will for your life. You're to be thankful and make that a, cultivate that in your life. If you pray to the Lord, if you make prayer like, you know, once every sort of six-month habit, He's like, no, I'd like you to be persistent. That's my prayer. That's my will for your life. Another one, 1 Peter 4.19, it's his will that he would suffer for his name's sake. So we, we, we stand up for him in this world, and if we receive persecution for it, um, and we suffer for it, he's actually grateful to us for that. That's his will for us. Another one, Ephesians 5.15-18, that you be obedient and you be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? And finally, Hebrews 10.36 I, I called it, I didn't have a word for it, I just call it steadfastness and faith. This happens after the passage, you know the passage where he says, some of you have had your houses basically ripped from you, and everything's been taken from you, you've been persecuted, you've lost everything in terms of like your homes, but you did it with joy. And it, so uh, the, the, um, the writer of Hebrews makes this clear, and then he says, but you've had the right attitude because you didn't see yourselves as, as uh, uh, 
as, uh, you saw yourself as aliens in this world because you know they have a better land to go to, then he encourages them to, be to continue in endurance in that type of hope and that type of faith. And that says that's the will of God for your life. Okay? So quickly, the five times his will laid out, sanctification, your prayer and thanksgiving, your suffering, your obedience, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and your steadfastness or endurance in your faith. These are the absolute I will statements from the scripture. And again, um, that is very clear. So again, like uh, I think you've, you've heard this teaching in 1 Corinthians 16 by Dan. I taught at our church where Paul's, Paul's uh, you know, basically saying, I'll come to you if I want to. If, the weather, you know, if, 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 if it's God's will, I will come to you. If it doesn't happen, I won't come to you. 1 Corinthians 16 is very clear about uh, you know, this layout of uh, Paul's free to make decisions, even though he's been called into ministry. But God will direct him, if need be, through these other three means. Finally, though, this is the other assumption is that uh, um, one often assumes that even if God does have a, a vocational, vocational, relational plan for you, that one can't be disobedient to it. And that's simply not true. And my favorite of all time is, is, is Paul. Especially um, the Reformed people will believe that, you know, like Paul was chosen, and so therefore, how can he have any free will in the matter? It's interesting, after in Acts chapter 6, verse 9, or uh, sorry, Acts chapter 9, when he calls them into ministry, he basically says, you've been chosen to be an instrument of mine to suffer for mine's sake. There's a very fascinating passage in Acts chapter 26, verse 19. And you can turn there with me if you want. Acts 26, 19. This is Paul standing before the king Agrippa. This is his assessment of his life as he comes to the near the end of his life after years and years of serving the Lord, after being called. After he gives his testimony, he says this, So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to, the, to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the land of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds, and so on. Here's the key. I did not prove to be disobedient to the heavenly vision. What do you mean, Paul? He didn't prove to be it. Paul understood he had an option. So the vision came. He was crushed in his spirit. He repented. But he ultimately understood he still had a choice. God had called him to this ministry, but he said, I could still say no to the Lord. You know who also did that? Or who did say no to the Lord? It was Jonah. A prophet called, given a plan by God, a vocational plan. And what did he say? God says, go, you're a cho like basically you're a chosen instrument, you're a prophet, and what does Jonah say? No, thank you, I ain't going. I don't like those people, I hate them actually. And God says, okay. So he takes off, and then he's obviously you know the rest of the story. Even, even after he did what God wanted, he, uh, he was miserable about it, and he basically sat under a tree, and basically moped his way through the rest of his time in Nineveh until he left, right? And so that's basically Jonah, again, his attitude stunk through the, through the whole thing. And, uh, but again, Paul, for me, is also probably the number one, uh, number one person that to look at because it assume, this, this always assumes that just because God has a plan for you that's locked stock and barrel and there's no getting out of it. But clearly Paul didn't think that way and uh, Jonah didn't either. So that's my fast answer to that. Uh, in addition to that, Romans 12, 1 and 2, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Uh, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know the will of God. This is, this is the notion that you're transformed that you may know the will of God, and the will of God is not so much non-moral issues. It's about not being conformed to the world, but being conformed and trans transformed into 
the kind of life that Jesus Christ wants you to live. And what life is that? Jesus said to the disciples in John chapter 14, you guys know what that life is. You know what it is for you to do my will. You know it. What is that will? That you obey my commands. That's my will. And in all of those commands, there, there's not these other non-moral type of commands out there. There are commands in regards to character. And he says, and if you love me, you will keep my commands, and my Father and I will disclose ourselves to you. That's God's will. God's will is that we would obey him. Uh, you remember the story of the Israelites, and somebody said, well, you know, they're led by a pillar of fire by night, and, uh, or, yeah, fire by night and cloud by day. Well, they didn't know where they were. In the middle of the desert. There's no maps back then. They couldn't. So God actually had to show them where to go. They needed that kind of help. Um, more importantly is that they would actually, when they were scared to death. You remember when Moses was getting the Ten Commandments? They were scared to death. They'd say, we don't want him to speak to us. You tell us. You tell us because we're scared to death, this guy. And Moses said, yeah, okay. And so I'm being like, yeah, okay. Uh, that's how God and these guys speak. Right? But, but um, the notion, therefore, is that how were the Israelites in relationship with God? They were in relationship with God by walking the way that he wanted them to. Because they didn't have this ongoing conversation with God. The Israelites didn't. It was Moses who did. So how are they related to him? They were related to him by walking in his way. Exactly what Jesus Christ says. You will show me that you are rightly related to me if you love me. And if you love me, you'll walk in my commands. What does that look like on a daily basis? On a regular daily basis, it's actually taking our cues from the leading of the Spirit. If you are a Christian here, you hear this every single day. When you're about to go a direction that's selfish, that is unloving, and the Spirit comes and says, no, no, that's not the way. It's over here. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, etc. from Galatians 5. That's the leading of God in our lives. I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, actually just this last, uh, uh, just yesterday, the day before, um, I was down on the coast trying to fish and guess we didn't do very well, but that's not God's will for you. That's not God's will for Apparently I'm not a fisherman. Just like Peter, I've been called out of that vocation. <laughs> and then we digress. Um, he actually said to me, uh, well, if God doesn't speak like that, then what are you saying? That God's not really involved in our lives? He's just kind of out there. I said, no, he's intimately involved in my life. He speaks to me all day long because my flesh is there all day long and I want to be a selfish sucker all the time. And the Spirit of God has directed me against those things all day long. Um, so I'm trying to decide what stuff I can actually say and not say in here. Um, so... Then does God know our every action? And like Andrew says, do we, have, do we have a choice in our action? And There are some places like in Genesis 2, Genesis 6, and Genesis 22. Um, in Genesis 2, you remember where God says, Can you, uh, I want you to name the animals. And so uh, uh, Adam names the animals, and, and God places them in front of him. It says, the language there is, to see what he would name them. The sense in there is that there is some freedom for Adam to come up with some cool names. He came up with some cool ones, um, but he wanted to see. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, uh, God is as in interaction with humanity, is saying, watching humanity and seeing that their thoughts are evil all day long, he's sorry he made them. Um, and then he comes up with a, a solution to that. Uh, Genesis chapter 22, when, when Abraham sacrifices, is ready to sacrifice his own son Isaac, and the language there is that, now I know that you love me. It's not that he didn't know before, but this was a, a, an actual test because he actually could have gone a different direction. 
Um, there's there's um, places in Scripture where God changes his mind. He changes his mind in interaction with humanity. Um, key one was um, the Israelites, God was going to destroy them all in Numbers chapter 14. I am finished with this crew. And I'm going to go through you now, Moses, so I'm going to wipe them out. Moses, no, no, please don't. And he's praying like crazy, Lord, please don't, please don't, please don't. Now, somebody might say, oh, if he would have killed them all, then I guess the Abrahamic covenant's gone. Wrong. Moses was, a, was also a Jew. Basically, God's saying, I'm going to a different plan. My plan was with all of these people, and now I'm just going to go through you. Moses, now you're the key guy, so it's Abraham all the way down to you. Get rid of these guys, but we can keep going now through you, Moses. But the plan before that was all the Israelites. Moses is praying like crazy, please, Lord, please go through them. And so God changes his mind. So there's a sense in which God can interact with us. Um, so people might say, well, what about prophecy? Does God know some things in the future? Of course he does. He knows all kinds of things in the future. I would remind you, though, that God has been watching us for 6,000 years. And if, you, if you're a parent and you've been watching your kids, you can predict the kinds of things that they're going to do in general ways. Andrew was saying the other day, he says, I can guarantee you that in the next 48 hours, Jace is going to cry. Still <laughs> can't see it. The prophet. The prophet. That's right. <laughs> he knows this as a parent because this happens. Now, imagine that God is watching us for 6,000 years the way we interact. There's a lot of things that God knows how we're going to react. He knows how kings are going to react if certain things are set up in certain ways, if countries are set up here, or if whatever. He knows in which ways in which we're going to react. So, in a sense, God is a an extremely good predictor. But he's also set up specific prophecies saying, I also know this is going to happen. So it's an interaction between God and humanity, but the parameters are set. We can't, we can't get outside of those parameters. So for example, the parameters of using Abraham all the way through, those are the parameters God says, I'm going to do this. How could he have done that? He could have done it through the Israelites or Moses. So the plan would have still been intact. But God is basically saying, I'm choosing now Moses. Moses gets involved and says, can, can you rework that? And uh, can you bring them back in? He says, okay. So the sense in, in which is that, yes, there's a sense in which God interacts with us, but there are parameters that God has set. I know we're talking really philosophical. And, um, but essentially the way that uh, Andrew and I would see it from Scripture is that um, our free will that we exercise in this life is where God would say, go out in this world and make me proud. Go out in this world and make me proud. Do you want to do this job or that job? You can do it. Make me proud. Do you want to live here or there? Go and make me proud. Um, there are several places in Scripture where people have vocations, they come to Christ, and they don't change. Cornelius, for example. Cornelius was a centurion. After he got saved, God didn't call him out of that to a new century or to a new job post. Now, the only way to therefore understand and say, well, God must have been okay with that choice. And that choice was actually done before he was a Christian. Before he was a Christian, decided centurion's a good option. God, after he becomes a Christian, doesn't go, oh my goodness, he better change jobs because this is what I do. I just get in there and tell people to change jobs all the time. He says, no, no, why don't you make me proud? Same with the jailer. Uh, same with Lydia, a seller of purple cloth. Same with another centurion in Luke chapter 7. Remember, Jesus says, No greater faith have I ever seen than this centurion right here. Didn't tell me he had to leave his job. So there's a sense in which there's freedom when we are followers of Jesus Christ. 
in, in terms of a job, maybe location where we live, uh, the kind of cars, house, this kind of stuff. God is, God is, he's, he's wide open to that, just like we are with our kids. We don't tell our kids once they turn into 19, 20, and 21 year olds, as I have in my house, I don't say, now, Cassidy, Alex, you gotta do this now. You should buy only this car. No, you have to be in by midnight, and, and here's the, the clothes that I'm gonna buy for you. You need to wear these clothes, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's more freedom now. We say, now go make me proud. And so Alex is, and Mike are choosing to go down the pathway of uh, uh, PR, public relations. Good, make us proud while you're doing it. Not like, <gasps> you know, that might be a bad job, and are you sure that's the will of God? No, no, the will of God, like Andrew was saying, is character-based. Look, I'll make him proud in the process. Same as Cassidy, a fitness trainer. So I think this is the same way with God to us. Go make us, go make, go make God proud, and live sold out for Him, no matter where you are. And don't be, don't be in this, this state of uh, ha this handcuffed state. Where if, unless God somehow tells me what job to do or where to move, I'm just handcuffed. I'm just waiting for Him to. Well, could God do that? Yes, He could. And has He? Yeah, vision, dream, this kind of stuff. Yeah, He could do that. As, as a vast whole, he is not going to do this. Because this is not the way God has interacted with humanity, especially in the New Testament all the way through. Oh. <laughs> but these are... What's that? God's will for you to move on. So these are, these are massive, massive questions that we're trying to answer in no time. And we're already at 50 minutes, Andrew. So... Um, um, we uh, one more, one more very quick one, and this is when is the right age for kids to take communion? I just had this one recently. When's the right age for kids to take communion? Well, in Acts chapter twenty-seven and verse eleven, it says once they turn twelve years age, they can take <laughs> communion. It's not there. Sorry. Um, so. Um, when you go to the communion passages like Luke chapter 22 or there's in Matthew and Mark or when you go to places like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, do this in remembrance of me. If your kids cannot do this in remembrance of the Lord, they don't understand it. And if they don't understand it, don't have them come and take communion. You say, well, what are we looking for for remembrance? It's like a quizzing thing. If they can quiz it back to you, if they can list off the verses, then you no, know, we're not talking about that. We're talking about, is there a sense in which there's a personal understanding of it? So what are we talking about when kids are younger? For the most part, kids are embracing your faith. They're embracing your faith. I doubt a six-year-old is going to leave and say, I don't believe in your God and I'm not gonna whatever. Or if you take off from the faith, they're not going to say, I'm gonna still stand up for Jesus. It's, it's gonna be tougher for them. It's still a genuine faith but, faith, but I would say it's more of the faith of the parents. It's still genuine. Once you turn, and this is my own perception on it, uh, I believe in those ages, if you can communicate, you can understand what Jesus Christ has done for you and forgiven you of your sins and that you have done wrong. And it's not just, yes, Jesus forgave me of my sins and he forgave me, and so I ask him to forgive me. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Can I take communion now? We're not talking that. Don't want a sense in which when your kids have done wrong and when they're crying about it, when they're disciplined for it, do you understand this? Yes, I understand it. Do you understand how you get out of this? Yes, it's by your spanking. No, it's not that. It's only by Jesus Christ. He's the one who forgives you this. Do you understand this? So now you've said sorry to your sister and you've said sorry to me. Now you've got to talk to God. And if they understand this, then I think bring them to communion. 
But here's, do not do this, please. Do not do this. Don't bring your kids up here because they feel excluded. Everybody else has taken it, and so, I, 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 how come I don't get to take it, Mom? How come I don't get to take it, Dad? That's not what communion's about. If they want bread, don't worry. We always have leftover. They can eat it afterwards in the kitchen, straight up. I'm serious about this. If, if they say, well, I don't know how come I don't get to have bread and everybody else does. You can have, they can have bread, but in there afterwards. Even some juice, they can have it in there. Um, but, but not up here. Here, when you take communion, it's to be done in remembrance of what Jesus has done for you. So there has to be an understanding, therefore. So what is the age? That is up to you as parents. That's a responsibility that you hold, not me. So when you bring your kids up here, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting that you believe your kids are in full understanding of it. I'm not talking about a recitation back to you. I'm talking about a personal understanding. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. But. Yeah, um, I mean, <clears throat> I agree again in the same approach with the people in our church with the, with the young kids. And this is not a thus saith the Lord statement I'm going to make. And uh, Dan and I just briefly talked about it this morning before I came here. Uh, and I, I don't even know if I, I'm just going to make a statement and I'm going to wrestle through this later in terms of a, as a, like what are the limitations or if this is actually good advice. But I wondered if a good uh, measurement or an appropriate measuring stick for when they're ready is by, based on baptism. The reason I say that is when you do baptism, what do you do? You, you give your testimony before a congregation that you're committed to Jesus Christ and you've understood forgiveness and living for him in a real personal way. If you can, if you can identify those things through baptism, then clearly your mindset towards the cross and who Christ is is clear enough to be taking communion. So I'm not saying you can't take communion unless you're baptized. But what I am saying, I wonder as I work through it with my children and myself as they grow older, if at the place of communion would I would, would bat, like the necessity for baptism for them in terms of their mental understanding of the gospel be a, as a pretty close parallel in terms of timing for when they could take communion? In other words, like you know, Dan gave me a little bit of pushbacks. Like he thinks maybe you could take communion before baptism, and I understand is like you know why that may be, um, but because baptism is like a pretty big deal when you're giving your testimony before people. But communion is a big deal in, as well because you're basically declaring what you believe by taking the, 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 the bread and, the, and the, the wine or the juice in our situation. So anyway, that's my only thoughts on that. I think I might use baptism as a potential marker for my kids in the future. You can, you t you can take communion once you understand you can give your testimony and you understand what Christ has done for you. So.